0: You're listening to Mystery of 2012, a Sounds True podcast. Episode number one, John Major Jenkins on the Mayan calendar. This week I interview John Major Jenkins, a leading researcher on Mayan cosmology and philosophy. We discuss the significance of the year 2012. From the perspective of the ancient Mayan sky gazers, who used an advanced system of naked eye astronomy, listen in to find out why John Major Jenkins believes that December 21st, 2012, marks the beginning of a new world age, a period of tremendous change and potential for transformation. Transformation <laughs> So, John, I've been talking to different authors and luminaries about 2012, and it seems to me that there's two different camps, and then people who fall maybe somewhere in between. But there's one camp of people who are really date-specific, who say changes are going to happen on these dates between now and December 21st, 2012, and we can map these dates from various calendar systems, etc., And then there are other people who say, you know, we're in a time of great change, of great evolution. And, you know, it might happen in 2012, it might happen in 2018, we don't really know. It's a wave of change. Where do you fall on this question?
1: Well, I really think that it's a process-oriented shift, that any kind of shift that's going to take place is going to require that we rethink our society's institutions, and certainly a shift in consciousness can be behind this, but I really think of long-lasting effective change as happening over a sort of a revolutionary period. However, on the other hand, when it comes to identifying what the end date of the calendar is, we can't afford to be very specific on that, because it has to do with the correlation of the Maya calendar with our own. So you know, according to the correlation or the reconstruction of the Maya calendar and how it correlates with our own calendar, the end of the 13 Bakhtun cycle falls on December 21st of 2012. By making that clear identification, it's not to say then that I believe that something specific is going to happen on that precise date.
0: So you went through a process of reconstructing or Mm -hmm. interpreting the calendar and pinpointing this date. Can you tell us a little bit about what process you went through?
1: Well, my process was involved in looking very deeply at the academic literature, and there was a lot of academic work that had been done around the correlation question. It was coming out of my desire to understand the Maya calendar, and I had to do some testing when I was encountering things that scholars were saying, and and all this material that you can discover as you read the academic literature, I came upon this end date, December 21st of 2012. So I had to understand more deeply and test that correlation. And in the early 90s when I was researching this, I did test it and look at it and question it, and I did basically concur with the scholars that the end date falls on December 21st of 2012.
0: And is it a coincidence that that's the winter solstice, or is that not a coincidence that was they understood the solstice dates?
1: Ah, this is the great question, because once you have that date in front of you, you notice that it's a solstice. This was my question, then, to scholars, in terms of trying to determine whether or not the ancient Maya were intending to target something specific about 2012 and the solstice. Certainly it seems that because it falls on a solstice date that it's either a huge coincidence or there was an intentional placement of the end date. So when I questioned scholars on this, scholars were pretty unanimous in saying that, well, yes, the correlation does pinpoint December 21st of 2012, and that's accurate, but the fact that it falls on a solstice just must be a coincidence.
0: Is that your view?
1: No, not at all. I mean, for me, wanting to approach the mystery of 2012 rationally, it generated questions. So one of my approaches was, huh, well, it seems to me pretty unlikely that that would be a coincidence. So the questions then that were generated were, well, let's entertain the possibility that it's not a coincidence. So then you ask, all right, well, where was this long-count calendar formulated, You know, do we have any kind of archaeological context for understanding that? And when? When was the long-count calendar first put in place?
0: And what did you discover in this search?
1: Well, again, you know, accessing good academic literature on this, I did find answers to that. And it basically focuses on this early Maya site called Izapa in southern Mexico. This was kind of a transitional culture that thrived about 2,100 years ago, And the Azapin culture, the Azapin civilization, was responsible for the development of the Long Count calendar.
0: And in your investigation of Azapa, you found archaeological ruins or other pieces of evidence that helped you reconstruct And then how did you correlate that with the Roman calendar, our calendar, the calendar we use? Well...
1: Yeah, when I looked at Izapa, I mean, the Izapan culture is centered on this archaeological site called Izapa. And that site is a very impressive site because there's over 60 carved monuments that are depicting the hero twin creation myth. So there's kind of like a message, there's a story that's preserved there at this site. And what I realized pretty early on is that the creation mythology is expressing insights about world ages, you know, how these people thought about cycles and world ages, and what was to occur at the end of a world age. So this is how it connects into the Long Count calendar, which the Azopans were also responsible for, because the Long Count calendar has this 13 Bakhtun period, which ends in 2012. So the 13 Bakhtun period would be like a world age. And so in order to understand what these people thought about 2012, the end of the cycle, you can actually read the carved monuments and understand and study the Maya creation mythology to understand what their beliefs were and what their spiritual teachings were about the end of the cycle.
0: And what was the Mayan belief about what happens at the end of a world age?
1: Well, generally speaking, because it's a cyclic time philosophy and the evidence that you do see by reading the monuments is that it's all about transformation and renewal. That is what they believe happens. But there's like an element of free will choice in this. So this adds an element of complexity to the so-called Maya prophecy for 2012, but it's very appropriate because if they were able to make a very specific prediction about what happens to humanity, then it's like we're fated to just play out our role in some clockwork universe. But what the Maya really understood is that during these transitional times, humanity must make a choice. And it's the choice between closing down in fear and succumbing to the forces of limitation. Or one can choose, humanity can choose, to open up, to work together, to facilitate a healthy and successful transformation and renewal of humanity to then move into the next world age.
0: So who do you believe the Mayans were? And what I mean by this is some people say, oh, you know, they're a species that came from alien sex with humans, and that's how (laughs) this, you know, very evolved group of people came into being. I mean, do you just believe they were an indigenous society that happened to have great insight? Well,
1: I... I do believe that they were indigenous people, but they were practicing a kind of high astrotheology, you might say. They were shamans. They were shamanistic. And one cannot ignore that at the site of Izapa, they basically practiced a kind of psychedelic religion because we find archaeologically sacred mushroom stones. So these... Shamans or astronomers that were doing this incredible thing at Azapa, developing this calendar that points to 2012 as a rare time of transformation and renewal for humanity. They were also opening up their minds by utilizing psilocybin mushrooms and other things that shamans use. So I believe that they were indigenous human beings, but I believe that they had access to a greater sort of multidimensional field of consciousness through which they could understand and have insights, real insights, into the the true architecture of reality from a larger perspective.
0: What was that term you used? Astrotheology? What was that word?
1: Astrotheology. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, their religion was tied to the cyclic movements of the planets and stars. So they had a kind of stellar religion.
0: So... What the sky looks like from Izapa, it's a constantly changing sky, of course, right? Mm -hmm. And how were they able from staring at the night sky to come up with a calendar system? What correlations did they make between the activity of Mm. the planets and the passage of time?
1: While well, they were adept sky watchers, it's fascinating what they were achieving even 2,000 years ago with their mathematics and their calendars and their observation of sky cycles. The Maya learned from nature, so they would look around them at uh, natural cycles of plant growth, and also they were paying close attention to the cycles in the heavens. And one of the most profound cycles in the sky that ancient people can notice is this vast 26,000-year cycle called the procession of the equinoxes. And it seems that the Maya had become aware of this cycle, and then they realized that there's certain kinds of alignments in this cycle of procession that they believed would signal times of great opportunity for human beings to transform themselves.
0: So if I'm looking at, the night sky, and of course, you know, as modern people who live in urban settings, we're quite at a disadvantage here. I and mean, I've only had a few times in my life when I've even seen a incredible, well-lit-up night sky. But still, I'm sticking with that in this imagination. What would the procession of the equinoxes look like to the naked eye? And how would I figure out that this was something like 26,000 years mm-hmm. for a processional cycle to be complete? How would the naked eye see this?
1: Well, for them, being naked-eye astronomers and sky watchers, for them, a big marker in the sky was the Milky Way, the bright band of the Milky Way. It's kind of like a road. Or even you could think of it, maybe imagine it to be like a finish line in the sky. And in relation to the Milky Way, the position of the sun on the solstice shifts. So the way that they observed precession and tracked precession involved the slow convergence of the position of the December solstice sun in the sky with this bright band of the Milky Way. So you have these two things that are moving closer and closer and closer together very slowly over hundreds of years and thousands of years. And for them, this was a, a mythologically potent idea. Once they realized and they noticed that the stars were shifting and the sky was shifting and precession was happening they realized that father Sun, the December Solstice Sun, which was a potent figure in their mythology, was going to, at some future date, converge with Mother Galaxy, which was also a mythologically potent figure in their mythology. So they became very, very concerned with projecting forward and calculating when these two things would converge in the sky. And that's what is behind the 2012 cycle-ending date.
0: And then how were they able to come up with this 26,000 years?
1: Well, that's the technique of tracking and calculating stellar shifting. And uh, this is being looked at very carefully by Maya scholars right now. There are several Maya scholars that have always believed that the Maya were capable of noticing precession and calculating it. And there's some scholars right now that are actually finding evidence for it in the Maya hieroglyphs and the dated corpus of materials. Basically, one needs to observe when a star is rising. So one might observe that the star, say, Capella, is rising six days after the summer solstice. And then that gets recorded as a piece of data in the star lore tradition. And I believe that there were guilds of astronomers that were passing down star positions and data among the ancient, the Maya, sky watchers. But then what happens is that after a 100 years or so, you notice that Capella is now rising five days after the solstice, and then another 50 years goes by, and Capella's rising four days after the solstice. So they can then take this information and get a handle on the rate of change, and then extrapolate the full 365 days of the year, and come up with a pretty good estimate for how long it takes for the full cycle of shifting.
0: I'm curious what you think about what their motivation was. I mean, here I am, I'm imagining living in an indigenous society and, you know, I'm worried about my health, food. Health of my children, sure, you know what's going to happen tonight tomorrow twenty six thousand years. I mean, why did they even <laughs> worry about this idea?
1: Well, the Maya culture was stratified, and there were different uh sections of the society, just like with any culture, so yeah, you had uh, farmers and and the rulers, and you also had the guild of astronomers that you know it was their job to figure these things out. They were the maybe the scientists uh, perhaps, but you know, they were scientists, but they were also concerned with spiritual questions. You know, for the Maya, scientific questions involving stellar shifting and movements and cycles in the heavens and our changing relationship to those things is also a spiritual question or a religious question. So I believe that there, there was a sector of the society that was dedicated to these more cosmic questions, the sky watchers.
0: Mm-hmm. And in your research and travels to Izapa, you've been there, right? Oh, yeah,
1: many times. Yeah.
0: What was it that you found there that was of most import to you?
1: Well, the ball court at Izapa is really where the information on 2012 is found. No,
0: No, what is the ball
1: court? The ball court is a long alleyway that is the field of play. There's sort of two high walls on both sides of this field of play, and it's where the sacred ball game was played. And it was played between two teams that represented the forces of limitation and the forces of freedom, or the you know forces of light and the forces of darkness. The ball game in Mesoamerica has been played for about 4,000 years. Okay,
0: so hold on. I get the idea of the two teams, but one team is considered the dark team and one team is considered the light team. Aren't they just two competitive teams playing a ball game?
1: Well, yes and no, because... It is like a competitive game, but it wasn't simply a demonstration of athletic prowess, because the ball game was also like a mystery play performance of the events of creation. There was a a theological or religious component to the game when it was played, because who was playing the game... All the different players in the game, they represented the different deities of the Maya creation So it was
0: more like a a theater performance where the outcome Mm -hmm. is already established than it was a true, it wasn't a sports game.
1: In a sense, yes, that's correct, yeah. Okay. And so because the creation mythology of the Maya involves the ball game as a central motif, in a sense the end result had to be performed and played out and so it's really about the hero twins defeating the lords of darkness and then facilitating a transformation and a renewal of the world to help the sun get reborn that's the central symbol of the ball game when the when the ball goes through the goal ring that symbolizes the sun being reborn at the end of the cycle at the end of the age
0: so if i understand this correctly there was some kind of theatrical performance that communicated the central creation myth, yeah, and that was played out on a stage that you're calling the ball court or the, yes. the ball, yeah, and can you briefly tell me the rebirth of the sun? I mean, doesn't that happen every day? Yes, so what's the big deal here that they would play out this performance?
1: right, well, the rebirth of the sun happens on several different levels, it does happen at dawn every day, and it happens at the December solstice every year. And it also happens in this larger context of the world ages, in 2012, the rebirth of the sun. And the rebirth of the sun here in the ball game symbolizes the rebirth of human consciousness, the solar consciousness, the light, the consciousness. So, although the... And result of the performance of the ball game, of the mystery play of the ball game, seem to be preordained. There's this element of human participation and there's this element for the observers of the mystery play where they're not quite sure if the hero twins, the emissaries of light, and the two twins who are involved in trying to help facilitate the the rebirth of the sun It's not sure that they're going to win, so there's always this kind of sense of uh, foreboding.
0: But they do win every time this is played out?
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's a faithful reproduction of the creation mythology. That's why the end of the cycle always brings a successful transformation and renewal. Now, the reason why this is the prophecy has to do, again, not so much with some predetermined outcome, but... It has to do with this interesting understanding of what prophecy is. A prophecy for the Maya is not simply the prediction of something that is fated to happen. You know, sometimes we have these prophets or prognosticators that make these kind of prophecies, and they're always using terminology like, this will happen. I call them predictators because it implies a kind of uh, certainty about what uh, the future holds. For the Maya, they choose to envision the highest possible outcome. In other words, they choose to envision or evoke a successful transformation and renewal. For them, prophecy is more of an evocation or a visualization of what they would like to happen. So it's always then about not the Lords of Darkness winning, but the team that is concerned with the rebirth the successful rebirth of humanity
0: so still trying to understand this as a dramatic performance i'm, I'm imagining that i'm in the audience watching this mm-hmm. and as i watch the ball game is it different each time the theatrical piece is performed
1: i guess i should clarify certainly the ball game was played as an athletic sport in some contexts in this early ceremonial context of the ball game at azapa which is sort of like, I guess you, you could think of it as the origin place of the 2012 revelation, or the, the original place of the creation mythology. And it was a ceremonial site. So there's the ceremonial context in which the ball game is played and performed as a mystery play. But certainly in other contexts, in other sites, uh, the ball game was, was played, you know, in a more secular sense, in which it was a game played between teams.
0: So it had both, Yeah. But the, yeah. the the court was used for both reasons. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I guess what I like to sort of focus on, what's most interesting to me, is how it was an expression of this creation mythology that points to the rebirth of the world in 2012.
0: Can you briefly share with me what the Mayan creation mythology is, what sure. the story
1: is? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, the Mayan creation mythology first appears on the carved monuments of Izapa. And it was later recorded among the K'iche Maya in the 16th century. So we have a document called the Popol Vuh, which is an expression of this creation mythology. And it's been translated. and, And in a nutshell, the Maya creation mythology is a world age doctrine. So it starts out by talking about the first several world ages that humanity passes through. And at the end of each world age, humanity goes through a transformation and a renewal. Now when it gets up into the present time, we learn about the adventures of the hero twins.
0: Yeah, who are these characters?
1: Well the hero twins are the twin sons of the deity called Wan And one is sort of a central figure in the creation myth. The creation myth really begins with Wan playing the ball game and he's making a racket. And so the lords of the underworld, who are below the surface of the earth, they hear this racket and they're angry. So they challenge Wanhunapu to come down to the underworld to play the ball game with them. So Wanhunapu does this and he travels through the road to the underworld and the lords of darkness in the underworld, they trick him and they cut off his head. So this is a problem. And Wanhunapu's head is hung in the in the branches of the calabash tree and his head kind of becomes a skull and it emulates what a calabash actually looks like so then a maiden comes along and Wanhunapu's skull calls out to her and says come over here and Wanhunapu says hold out your hand and she holds out her hand and he spits into her hand and she magically conceives the hero twins so she travels to the surface of the earth, and later she gives birth to the hero twins. Now, they don't know about their father yet, but they discover the ball-playing equipment in the rafters of their grandmother's house, and they're playing the ball game, and they too are challenged by the lords of the underworld to come do battle with them. At this point, the hero twins discover what happened to their father, so they make a vow to avenge the death of their father, and to facilitate his resurrection, his rebirth. This is all a symbol for the rebirth of the true consciousness at the end of the age. What's going on as a subtext in this story is vanquishing the uh, lords of darkness, who are that energy or that type of consciousness that seeks to keep humanity controlled through fear and lying and betrayals. So there's really this dynamic that emerges in the creation myth, that it's it's a dynamic between two different kinds of consciousness, a consciousness that's only concerned with its own self-preservation and greed. So it's really a kind of consciousness that is exemplified by the lords of darkness, where it's ego, ego consciousness, a limited kind of consciousness that doesn't see anything beyond its own self. So then what happens is the hero twins know what the Lords of Darkness are all about, and they successfully trick the Lords of Darkness and sacrifice them. How do they do that? Well, uh, they're tricksters. And basically what happens is they tell the Lords of Darkness to uh, burn them up and throw their bones in the river. And so the Lords of Darkness do this. And the Hero Twins then have set the stage so that the fish can gather up their ashes and then do a ritual and facilitate their rebirth. And so the Hero Twins come back because they're magicians. And they're able to facilitate their own self-resurrection. And the Lords of Darkness are amazed at this, and they want to learn how to do this too. So the Hero Twins sacrifice them and burn them up, but they don't bring them back. Mm -hmm. So they're tricksters. They pulled off a trick on the Lords of Darkness. The way the tricksters work, it's kind of like tricksters never really just vanquish the enemy through some kind of powerful act, really. Tricksters cause the enemy to facilitate their own demise because they have an Achilles heel. Basically, it's like reflecting the flaw back to the enemy so that they just self-destruct, basically. That's kind of how that works. So it's a really fascinating story, the hero twin myth. And then at the end, they're able to restore the head of their father and restore the the mind and the body to create this reborn consciousness, basically at the end of the myth. And that symbolizes the rebirth of the consciousness of humanity at the end of the cycle.
0: So thinking about this rebirth of the sun, which I guess is getting the head and the body and the new consciousness born symbolically, you know, when you were speaking about that, it's obvious that the sun is reborn every day when we wake up. And even at the winter solstice, it's the return, that part's obvious. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is that these Mayan stargazers, this special astronomical guild with the naked eye, was able to say that there would be some procession of equinoxes mm-hmm, such mm-hmm. that 26,000 years later, there would be some kind of symbolic rebirth of the sun yes, in 2012, in the, in the heavens. So what does that final sun rebirth, I'm trying to follow that's
1: that. The, that's the beautiful part of this whole cosmology because their creation myth is linked up to 2012 because of this rare astronomical alignment. So the creation myth of the resurrection of the sun, the rebirth of the sun at the end of the age, is linked to the alignment of the December solstice sun with the Milky Way galaxy. This is the alignment that takes place in the years around 2012. This is why they perceived a rebirth of the sun, of course, at dawn, and then, of course, at a December solstice, which happens once every year. But they also conceived of the rebirth of the sun at the end of this 13-baktun cycle in 2012, because that's when the December solstice sun is lined up with the Milky Way, the bright band of the Milky Way, and that part of the Milky Way that contains the nuclear bulge of the galactic center, which they perceived of as being the womb of the Great Mother, a rebirth place in the sky. So the sun gets reborn when it lines up with the galactic
0: center. This nuclear bulge, this is something that's visible to the naked eye? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. And then 26,000 years from 2012, will we be at the end of another yes. great age? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So it's kind of this uh, sort of profound understanding of cycles, and I guess it remains to be seen whether or not this astrotheology that the Maya had in place really is behind all the change that we see going on around us in the world today. I mean, I have a hunch that it probably is. We just don't have any scientific focus on precession and these kinds of alignments to the Milky Way. I think it's something that's possibly going to revolutionize how, how we understand our changing relationship to the larger universe and the kinds of things that happen in the larger universe that stimulate change on this planet.
0: Do we know anything about what happened 26,000 years ago?
1: Well, not so much, but we do have some inklings from 13,000 years ago, which would have been the half cycle, which would have been another kind of galactic alignment that happened half a precession cycle ago.
0: What do we know about what happened 13,000 years ago?
1: Well, it seems like that was the end of the last ice age. And it also seems that there are some echoes that come down to us from ancient lore. Plato, in his book, the Timaeus, preserved an ancient lore that he probably got from Egyptian priests about the sinking of this fabled semi-mythical land of Atlantis that, according to the year counts that Plato gives, would have happened about 13,000 years ago.
0: And what would the importance be of the half Great Age cycle?
1: The importance of the half Great Age cycle, going back to 13,000 years ago, is a reference to the height of the previous golden age of human consciousness. This ties into the understanding of time cycles among the Hindus. So the importance of 13,000 years ago is a reference to when human consciousness and human spirituality started to diminish on the planet. So we've gone through this sort of 13,000 year half cycle in which There's been a diminishment of spirituality on the planet. At the same time, there's been an increase of material technologies. And now here we are at the end of this phase, about to turn the corner with the 2012 alignment. And one interpretation of this is that we're about to start returning to a kind of consciousness that's more concerned with unity. It's not concerned with division and materialism, a kind of consciousness that is oriented back to the true sources of life and light.
0: Now, I've heard you mention that the idea of sacrifice is important during this end of the Great Age. What do you mean by that? What are we sacrificing? Well,
1: yeah, yeah. This seems to me to be the core teaching in the Maya creation mythology around how to successfully facilitate a transformation and renewal sacrifice is necessary at the end of the cycle at the end of the cycle you have the forces of darkness ruling and ruining the planet and human beings have been deceived and have been tricked into buying into the power structure of the forces of ego the ego consciousness so we've inherited this situation and as we wake up and reclaim our birthright as spiritual beings, we have to somehow disentangle ourselves from this web of lies. So what gets sacrificed is our attachment to the illusions that keep us bound into this structure of limitation that was set up by the forces of darkness. So the ironic thing is that what we are called upon to sacrifice are merely the illusions. We're not called upon to sacrifice anything real. We're called upon to sacrifice the veil of illusions that keep us from seeing the true nature of reality and the true nature of a kind of spiritual consciousness that we can reclaim as our birthright so we can move into a healthier era.
0: When you were telling the creation myth of the Maya, and you mentioned how the hero twins let themselves be burned up, I was thinking about that as an image of sacrifice, in a way.
1: It- yes, thank you for noticing that, because that is kind of an image of sacrifice. And the earliest, earliest doctrines of sacrifice that we find involve a kind of self-sacrifice that can be portrayed or expressed as a kind of self-sacrifice in which a person throws themselves into the fire of transformation. But the underlying doctrine is, is really about sacrificing our false self, our ego self, you might say. But again, it's a transformational image. Fire transforms, and so we want to transform the ego into having a right relationship with the true self.
0: What does that mean, I'm curious to you, in more concrete terms, in terms of people sacrificing their illusions or what's Mm.
1: false? Well, um, this is sort of something that's, Hard for me, in particular, to language because it maybe goes beyond a little bit what uh, what I've written about in my work. But I've thought about it, so I guess I'd say that on a practical level, it involves the challenge that we all have to sacrifice the things that we're entangled in that are perhaps feeding an unsustainable world. We have to sort of take a close look at our lives. And we all have certain habits of behavior that are perhaps tied into, say, the use of automobiles. And also in the style that we relate to each other, I think there's certain habits. And some of these things we hold dear and we hold close and are very wrapped up in our identities. And so I think that a practical way that this might play out is in possibly Learning how to live a fulfilling life with less stuff, perhaps, mm-hmm. I guess, is a bottom line sort of way that I point to.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I know you also talk quite a bit about meditation mm. and the value of a meditation practice. How does that fit in at all to this end of, yeah. of a great cycle? Well,
1: in my approach to this, I have a metaphor that I use, that has to do with the cycles of time. And cycles are often thought of as being a wheel, a circle. And it's hard to identify where the circle begins and ends. So the metaphor that I like to use is the breath cycle, understanding the way that cycles work, where it's really more about a breathing in and a breathing out, a breathing in and a breathing out. Now how that applies to the processional cycle is that It's like moving in and out of relationship with our true selves. And in 2012, we're coming into intimate relationship with our true selves. We have an opportunity to open up to that blessing. The opportunity involves our free will choice to choose to open up, to sacrifice the illusions that are keeping us from knowing that we have that opportunity and have that possibility. So, I advocate Vipassana breath work, Vipassana breathing meditation, as a way that people can experience for themselves as an inner knowing through the practice of Vipassana, which is really about the focusing on the still point between the breaths. Because the analogy with 2012 would be that the still point at the end of out-breath is analogous to the 2012 alignment. It's kind of like that crack between the worlds. It's that that place in the cycles of time that sort of provides a little open doorway through which we can catch a glimpse of our true selves.
0: John, you've studied the Mayan and their artifacts so deeply. I'm curious for a moment, we'll just do a little pretend exercise here. If you were to give voice to what you think they would want us to know, right now. What would you be saying? What do you think the Mayan want us to know here as we enter 2009?
1: I guess I would say that the Maya would like us to remember that we are deeply, deeply interwoven with the larger universe. The cycles that are happening around us, in the sky, on earth, that we are part of the fabric of reality and that we can open up to remember and awaken to a direct knowing of that. And when that happens and we have that experience of our implicit and essential unity with all other beings in the universe, then our world can be transformed for the better. It's kind of like a conversion experience that humanity can have at this time, a a metanoia, a turnabout in the deepest seat of consciousness, so that we can reorient our priorities away from this ego system of of self-preservation and self-serving interests, so that we can start making decisions based upon the direct knowing that we have that all beings are interconnected.
0: Very good. Thank you very much. Well, thank you.